0: All right, I think we're recording. Hello, welcome to the Snooker Scene Podcast. I'm Dave Hendon. Michael McMullen joins me again. And like any self respecting podcast, we're gonna start with an apology. Uh because last week it was all going quite well, I thought with you know, we had a chat about the qualifiers and actually, the sound quality wasn't bad, but I've got this new microphone, and it turns out it's really sensitive. In fact, I think it's the one Freddie Mercury used at uh, Live Aid. That's how sensitive it is, because as I was sort of innocently rustling through the cruise almanac, just looking stuff up, it sounded horrible. Neil Folds actually asked me why I was moving a fridge in the middle of the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> so apologies for that. I will try this week to keep it under control, but um, you know, by, by the end of the lockdown, we'll have this, we'll have this done, the this, this, this sound quality thing.
1: I was going to say, there was so much Mike Russell in it. It was almost a billiards podcast, but anyway, sorry. <laughs>
0: <That's>, <laughs> even for this podcast, that's a niche reference. Yeah, this is Mike nice Russell.
1: Russell. I mean, that's, billiards yeah. is the home of niche.
0: <laughs> Very good. Anyway, our main topic today is going to be uh, the, this Crucible Classic series is running on the BBC. They made a terrible start with it. They showed the, the, the worst... Quality snooker in the first one, Tony Knowles, Steve Davis, which was not a classic. It was a huge story and a massive shock, but the match was terrible. It just was. And uh, that wasn't the best start, but it's got better and better as it's gone on. But we, uh, as we said last week, and we've had a few emails on this, are going to choose matches from the World Championship that are not part of that series and also not final. So three matches each that we would like to see again from the World Championships. Coming up later, first up, we've had a couple of emails that I'm going to read, and the first one is a very interesting one. It's from Matilda from Italy. We often talk about the state of the game at the grassroots. Of course, we're talking about Britain and Ireland because that's where we live. We kind of forget, actually, we've got it good compared to a lot of countries who are are much newer to the sport. So I'm going to read. uh, I've slightly edited this just for length, but I'm going to read. There's plenty here. There's plenty here. Okay. Okay. My name is Matilda. I'm a 20-year-old snooker fan from Italy. First of all, I would like to say thank you to both of you for the continued entertainment in these tough times. Snooker's kept me sane since I discovered it during the 2016 UK Championship. I think I'll be feeling withdrawal symptoms. I wanted to write to share some of my fondest memories of this great game to shed some light onto the snooker scene in in my country naturally as i've only been following snooker for a few years i haven't collected the same companion of great memories as the two of you i so desperately wish i could have known about it from a much younger age believe me believe me matilda 20 is plenty young enough (laughs) honestly Uh, i I was
1: going to say it's remarkable to hear someone saying that snooker is keeping her sane it has the opposite (laughs) effect on most
0: people give it time right Anyway, we continue. Snooker is the great unknown among cue sports in Italy. The younger generations will use the term billiards to refer to cue sports in general, but more specifically to pool. What is known as billiards in the UK is referred to as carom. We have our own specialities, such as goraziana and five pins, which are played on carom tables but with the addition of small pins placed in a cross shape at the centre of the table. There are two balls on the table, a white and a yellow, which serve as cue balls for either player, and points are scored by knocking the pins down using the other player's ball or by performing a carom. It seems easy, but the challenge of knocking down the pins while also leaving both balls in good positions for the next shot is anything but. Just to break in here, Matilda, I know about this game because because years ago Clive Everton had to go to Eurosport in Paris to commentate on, he was just told it was a billiards program. Now, Clive had a great billiards career. He thought, okay, no problem. You know, I know all about that. Got there. Turned out to be Italian five-pin billiards, which he'd never heard of. And well, he had. Phil us, was uh, meant to do that. Phil Phil was meant to do it, and quite wisely, perhaps, he pulled out of it at the last
1: minute. Now, for Phil <laughs> to turn down any work at all is, is, is quite something. But I know he was meant to do it
0: well clive had a, a sort of rudimentary run through of the rules with someone and, and and got on with it like the pro he is anyway we continue most people who play these games don't really know about snooker when my dad and i first got into the game we wanted to find a place to play we found a dingy underground club in our city with eight pool tables and four carom tables out in the back behind several doors and dark cori- corridors there was a lone snooker table that mustn't have seen more than a couple of frames played on it before the club was shut down There are proper snooker clubs around the country, usually passion projects that are not economically sustainable. The closest one to us is 80 kilometres away or roughly the same distance from London to Basingstoke. For the past two years, we've been making the drive every weekend to get to play for a few hours. If anyone wants to compete nationally, they'll have to go up north. I've been in three national competitions outside my region, but the highest level of competition is pretty inaccessible for average players like me. And then in brackets, I have a 40 break. Well, if you've not been playing long, that's actually really good, Matilda. Um, she, conti- she continues, it's very draining to pay for three, four-hour train rides. Either way, find a hotel to sleep in just to play in another rundown club with two or three tables at most and get battered 3-0 by national-level pool players who make 60s and 70s with ease but don't know what a safety shot looks like. But I keep doing it because I truly and sincerely love the game. Sometimes I resent other players for not sharing the same passion and playing with an attitude of just hitting a few balls around but there are exceptions to the rule. And she talks about uh, some of the leading players in Italy. She also says, um, inevitably, and this seems to happen in every country, there are a few internecine sign squabbles going on as well. Never. Um, I know, it's hard to believe, isn't it? But she mm. said, um, clubs and tables in the country are so few and far between that the moment you make... One your regular stomping ground, you're in effect pledging allegiance to one club. Club owners and managers all know one another, and there's some tension between them. It's very difficult to envisage how this country's fledgling snooker scene could ever become unified and move to a more legitimate level if the if the big names that uh, she mentioned earlier on, uh, who ought to represent the sport for everyone in the country, still get lost in petty squabbles over who's from where. Absolutely right. She did. Uh, she said she went to the European Masters. That's the first live snooker she saw until the final, when Neil Robertson destroyed Joe You Long. He said, uh, it's the only professional match I've attended, and it's my, probably my fondest memory, but more so than the match, I remember the exhibition that was played to fill the time after. It was played between Neil and Andreas Plona, one of the top Austrian players. And uh, Neil Neil uh, lost the opening frame. Well, it seemed he was playing with someone else's cue anyway. To conclude, she says, there's something powerful and transformative about snooker. I could not imagine a life without it going forward. It's my hope that in years to come, more players from the unheralded countries like Italy make waves in the amateur and professional circuits. I hope to contribute to the development of a strong grassroots snooker movement in my country that will one day produce a top player who will fly the trickle or flag on television. I hope as well we can manage to break down the gender barriers that surround Q sports and paint an image of a masculine environment that is discouraging and off-putting for young girls and women like me. In these times of stillness, we tend to think back on our fondest memories, but maybe it's also time to start making plans for the future. So a great email that and it's nice to hear... It's nice to hear, firstly, that Snoop is been a thing it in Italy. Obviously, it's on Eurosport there. It's at the moment quite low-key, it sounds, but at least there are places to play. What an effort she's making there, you know, travelling all that way just to play.
1: Yeah, remarkable, incredible email, that. And I only remember ever meeting an Italian at a tournament once. It was actually at the World Final a few years ago. And then I noticed him during play in the final. He was holding up his iPad and recording the whole match. <laughs> <laughs> it was something I've never seen before or since. And the referee, I can't remember who it was. It might have been Brendan Moore. And, you know, hard luck on the Italian if it was, because Brendan doesn't tolerate mm. nonsense. He made it very clear once he saw what was going on that this was not an acceptable thing to do. So that, that's the only time I've ever met an Italian at a tournament. And Italy actually has, a, a, again, this is niche, but it's a unique place in the game's history because, as you know, and as most of our listeners will know, the only snooker player ever to win sports personality of the year in the UK was Steve Davis in 1988. But he was presented mm. with the trophy in Milan, I think, because yeah. he was playing a match that night against Terry Griffiths in the old uh, Norwich Union European Grand Prix. And they cut over to him being presented with it. I'm fairly sure that was in Milan. So there is a bit of an Italian connection with the game in that sense from way back but you think i mean what a big country italy is what a big sporting country it is uh, it would be fantastic if, if snooker was to really take off there and you know if there are a few more people like uh, our listener there uh, following the game then it shouldn't be too long in happening
0: that's what you need isn't it you need enthusiasts thank you matilda we've had another email that i want to read out this is from the uk it's james clark he's a snooker fan journalism graduate works in digital marketing now there's a word of warning here he mentions me in a complimentary way. And, and people will say, oh, that's the only reason you're reading out. But actually, he's making some points about this big WST relaunch. So it was World Snooker. They relaunched as WST with the tagline, the future is now. Now, they've been a bit unlucky, actually, because, of course, everything stopped. So they're having to fall back on what everyone else is doing, which is nostalgia stuff, because there's no yeah. snooker going on. There's that virtual thing going on as well. But anyway, again, I've slightly edited this for length, but I will read his email. He says, back in January, Will Snooker announced their rebrand to run alongside the start of the 2020 Masters. We saw a bigger arena, an enhanced set, and a new 2020 friendly logo. Big things were promised, but, but the much needed WST rebrand seems to have stuttered out of the starting blocks. Snooker has a serious catch-up job on their hands to move the sport into the current era, with their online digital presence failing in comparison to a number of top UK sports. But how do they do this? Naturally, the answer to this is communication and the UK lockdown may be the perfect opportunity to push forward. So where do they start first and foremost the website needs immediate attention in february wst released their first ever mobile app but rather than experimenting with a new design they simply rehashed the dated template which has been used for donkey's years Other sports, on the other hand, have regularly updated apps which have been around for a number of years. It makes sport more accessible, puts the action in the hands of of the people who are willing to invest time into it. The website needs to capture the, the imagination of snooker fans across the world with new imaginative content, not just rehashed top 10 shots or top 10 break builder articles. They have quite literally been done to death snooker has a host of tv personalities and writers at their disposal, and this is where it's coming where i get mentioned uh, to help market the sport and should be utilizing them accordingly for instance andy goldstein hosts one of the most successful regular sporting radio shows on talk sport and dave hendon has the ability to capture fans imagination with a unique high quality writing style thank you very much james He says, I'm no cricket fan by any means. However, a quick glance at the ECB site, and you are immediately greeted by a website worthy of a top sporting institution. There's an evident lack of dodgy advertising placements and enough content for fans to interact with, including videos from the game's top stars. Visit the World Snooker Tour website, and I'm faced with some poorly placed adverts, an outdated tournament countdown ticket for the already past tour championship, and another plug for the Snooker 19 video game. An issue WST currently needs to address is how they're actually going to entice new fans. UK clubs are closing down at an alarming rate and young junior talent isn't looking too promising either. More and more, the Asian domination predicted a decade ago seemed more likely than ever, but almost due to a lack of competition. We need fans picking up the sport at a young age. The only way to do this is by communicating with new audiences in environments both familiar and appealing. We need kids in school sharing content with their mates and six by three pool tables back at the top of Christmas shopping lists. People are spending more time on social media than ever and giving the website and social content strategies a full facelift may actually see more people tune in once Snooker is back on the telly. It's an opportunity WSD can't really afford to miss, especially if matches are played behind closed doors to a potentially larger audience it's a bit more there's a bit more but i think we get the gist Yeah. <laughs> i think we get the gist that james is not fully on board i was thinking about this I'm, i made a few bullet points so i'm just gonna kind of uh, spitball here for a couple of minutes he mentions the app there and one good thing about the app one really good thing actually is you can now uh, look at the frame scores in matches with breaks which you never had before you used to have to sort of go through a workaround on snooker.org Uh, so that's actually a really good thing. The rest of it, I have to say, I don't think is anything that special, but it is early doors yet, so maybe give them a chance. Uh, The website, look, I know all the people who work on the website and indeed on the media team. They're all friends of mine. I'm not going to slag them off. They really care about snooker. They work really hard, particularly at tournaments. You know, you sit next to the tournaments, they never stop. And of course, they have to pull up with a lot of criticism, whether it's warranted or not. However, the website is very hard to navigate. If, you know, if something drops off that front page, it's very hard to find it. The pop-ups... The adverts are annoying, but of course they also have to pay for it, I guess, because it's a difficult thing commercially to make websites pay. I think some of the stuff they do isn't interesting. Actually, I don't mind countdowns and features like that. They had a very good story up this week about Olivia Martel working in the Belgian health service yeah, at, the, at the sharp end. You know, a very inspiring story. Actually, one of, the, one of the game's leading referees doing an important job. And of course, if they were going to bring people in from the outside, they have to pay them and money's always going to be an issue. Um, I actually... Like their social media output, they put a lot of work into it. But having said that, I'm probably not the demographic for it. James clearly is a younger man. It's not working for him. Uh, they have Bayes Watch, which actually is popular online, their magazine show, although it's, it's become a bit irregular, I think, because the people who work on it have to do everything else as well. At there is a slight issue always with, with the governing body, and this, I think, is true of all governing bodies, of a sort of them-and-us culture. And I, I know this myself because I used to be, many years ago, over 20 years ago, WPSA press officer. and there's one torment where I was having a drink in the bar at an event with some journalists, and a member of the then WPSA board came over and told me I shouldn't be drinking with the media. Now I was the press officer, so I kind of saw it as my job to to sort of you know chat with the press. but so that's kind of what the attitude was then. thankfully, it's a lot better now. Uh, but I think this whole argument basically boils down to a single question, WST is it their job to promote snooker or is it their job to promote their own stuff now you might think that's the same thing but i'm not absolutely sure there is as i've been mentioned i'll mention myself again this is the 104th episode of this podcast we've been going five years they haven't once publicized any of them now you might say well why should they it's got nothing to do with them it's not their thing you could also say well why shouldn't they you know it's promoted their players their events and is listened to by a lot of snooker fans I'm guaranteeing one thing, if the BBC did a snooker podcast, they'd be tweeting the hell out of it all day long. WST seems to me, here's an analogy, a warning and is coming up. Okay. It's like, there's a tent and you've got to be in the tent and anything not happening in the tent doesn't matter. The answer to that, make the tent bigger. So there's two great websites. Okay. Independent of the governing body, Q tracker and snooker.org. Absolutely invaluable for snooker fans, all the info they have there. And they run entirely by snooker fans who give a lot of their own time to it. Now, Ideally, the governing body should be the source of information. They don't have anything like this range of info. So why not actually support these sites, if necessary, with money to keep them going? Because one day, the people running them could have just had enough of it. It would massively benefit Snoop in the long run. There are loads of people doing things for the sport as well outside of that, who I'm sure would appreciate some sort of support. And maybe some more thinking outside the box would also help. The other side of that, though, the problem for WST is that any governing body like a government They're always there essentially to be shot at, whether fairly or not. And when they do try to do different things, they're often pilloried. Now, we go back to the World Grand Prix. I was in Cheltenham, and they decided to use these drawings of players instead of photos for all their sort of publicity in social media. Now, some of these drawings were really good and some were less good. And, of course, everyone online fixated on the less good ones and effectively bullied them into taking them off. They didn't use them halfway through the event. So having thought outside the box, the sort of mob descended And it's almost like they might see you you sort of can't win. But it goes back to the central question I asked. Is it their job to promote snooker or to promote their own stuff? If it's just the latter, then there's always going to be that kind of smallness. And perhaps that's what James is talking about. It's cautious because it's corporate, it's sanitised. Maybe it does have to be that way. Maybe there's another way to make that tent that I mentioned earlier on. Bigger, gain new fans, attract a new generation of spectators. We're all trying to do our best for snooker. We all want to see it do well. And I think we could all agree despite its success on tv it could be doing better that's my two cents on it
1: i think that was more than two cents Dave. that was a couple hundred dollars there (laughs) um well clearly the answer to everything is to bring back snooker radio of course i mean well i was going to mention that yeah well of course that's something you were involved in that lasted four days it was not given a chance well look who knows maybe in the future that will come back the the one thing i would say about all that you know you have a better understanding you say you're not the demographic but you're far more tuned into that whole social media world than i am so i'm even less qualified to comment on it. What I would say is there's a lot of catch-up to do because Snooker was doing nothing for so mm. long in previous administrations. and was so slow to catch up to, you know, the internet, as it was known then. Nobody ever even says that word anymore. It's always <laughs> online or the net or the web or whatever. Um, so there is an element of playing catch-up there. But again, you know, I'm mates with all those guys as well, um, Roddy and Sam and Ivan and all the rest of them. And it, it's going to take time for these things, but at least they're trying something which for a long time it was just being ignored the world was changing it was going online it was going digital and snooker was ignoring it at least that certainly isn't happening now and we'll see how it develops over the next few years
0: absolutely i agree with that maybe to distill what i've just said the issue is not the personnel they all work really hard and they all love snooker they're snooker fans as well as working in it the problem or not the problem but the issue for me is what what is actually the role of the governing body is it to promote snooker full stop everywhere it moves or is it just to concentrate on what they're doing their tournaments if it is that it seems to me a little bit narrow but anyway we've spent a long time talking about these things so let's actually move on to the actual topic of the podcast which is of course matches at the crucible we would like to see again now i've had some emails a couple uh, kind of go together um and i'll just call them up here on my Smartphone, you see, this is how engaged we are with the modern yeah, world. Yeah,
1: I told you you were more clued in than I am.
0: <laughs> Firstly, well, I had one from Jack Taylor actually. Not he, he, was, he enjoyed last week's chat about qualifiers, and he said he was there for Steve Davis's last ever match when he lost to uh, Fergal, and uh, he's enclosed a picture, which obviously you can't see on the podcast, of him with Steve. What I would say about this, Jack, you would not know that Steve had lost. He looks fine considering his career is over. Maybe he was already looking forward to to Glastonbury. Anyway, hmm. um. I, yeah, so Ben Thomas he's has emailed, he says, enjoying the series. He's listed a load of matches he'd like to see again. There's matches like the Fred Davis Perryman semi-final seventy-eight, Griffiths V. Higgins 79, Fred Davis, Bill at nineteen eighty-four, just to see Fred's last appearance at the crucible because he was seventy. But he says it's never gonna happen. BBC were always just gonna repeat the original series. Eurosport also never show anything older than about three years ago, even though they have been covering World Snooker since two thousand. And on a similar theme, Scott McArthur he says, I personally think it's a bit lazy of the BBC to throw out the classic matches again. I have nothing against the matches themselves. I think the BBC could have done better. He talks about the and stevens match, 2001, um, 98 as well, the final semifinals. Um, I think Hazel Irvin does a great job, but the BBC have left a lot to be desired. Well, of course, the problem is... And this is just a fact. A lot of these matches, certainly the ones in the first email there from the 70s and 80s, just don't exist anymore. Because because they were literally recorded on tape. And you can imagine, hour upon hour, I mean, there wouldn't have been much of that shown at the time, that Fred Davis-Bill Werbernet match. But the idea that someone in 1984 is going to say, we must keep that because 30 years from now, people want to see it again. It would have just been destroyed because they wouldn't physically have the space to keep considering the amount of sport the BBC did they're not just snooker, to keep everything, it just wouldn't have made sense. Um, so unfortunately, unless someone recorded it on, on video, and there are these sort of videos knocking around, Roger Lee, the game's leading historian, his whole house seems to be full of them. So they do exist sort of, you know, on the underground market, as it were. But the BBC wouldn't have them. So that's why they've um, relied on, on the sort of old favourites. And also, in slight like defence of this Crucible Classic series, it is a repeat from four years ago. But in the current climate, it's not so straightforward to make new programmes. No, absolutely. Um, Some of those matches, I mean, you know,
1: every single one of them, you know, the likes of us know everything that happened, basically. But I'm actually looking forward, I have to say, to seeing the 85 final again, because I've not seen that for about 20 years and okay look we know about the final frame we've seen that many times but we don't know actually that much about the rest mm. of the match and I mean Dennis coming back from 9-1 on the Saturday night getting back to 9-7 he played really really well so things like that I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing actually when they get round to doing that one and I think you've got to pick the standout matches you know you've got to pick the games that uh, people really want to see that are woven into the to the game's history and Leave it to the likes of us, I suppose, to talk about the slightly more obscure stuff as we're, as we're going to do eventually.
0: Slightly more obscure. Well, just before we get on to that, so Rory Gavin has picked out a match he'd like to see. Uh, the first crucible match he watched from start to finish 2016 first round Stuart Bingham Ali Carter, of course, Bingham, Spending oh, yeah. Champion. And, and what a terrible draw to get Ali Carter in the first round. He says it's a first round match, I often think it goes unnoticed, but he had a great standard throughout with centuries from both final frames, one of the tensest sporting moments I've witnessed, and also had me hooked on the sport ever since. Also, it may it contributed to the ever-present Crucible curse. So that's another one, more recent one. But what we're going to do, so these are the rules of the game. We're going to uh, pick three matches each. They can't be part of this series on the BBC, and they can't be finals, but they are from the World Championship over the years. I've done a lot of talking, so why don't you go first?
1: Yeah, well, I flagged up one of these last week. It's 20 years ago, virtually to the day. First round of the 2000 Championship. David Gray against Ronnie O'Sullivan, who was coming in in great form. He just won the Scottish Open. He beat Mark Williams 9-1 in the final. And he'd made a 1-4-7 in an earlier round of that tournament. Uh, So coming in on a real high, he'd won another ranking event earlier in the season as well. And then, of course, Stephen Hendry got beaten on the opening day of the championship. So that opened the path even more for O'Sullivan. And it seems bizarre to think now when you consider he was only 24. He'd been around a while and there was almost a sense that he needed to get a move on if he was going to get the sort of level of world title success that people expected of him. So Gray really wasn't expected to do much. He was in the early stages of his career. He hadn't made an enormous impact yet at all. O'Sullivan duly got off to a great start, had three centuries in a row, then a break of 96 after that. And that put him 5-1 up. But Gray got back in, hung in, only 5-4 down overnight. And it was a fantastic session the next day. O'Sullivan had another couple of centuries so that was five in total in the match even now that would be outstanding but then it was just incredible for anyone to make five centuries in the best of 19 match it was such a rare thing so O'Sullivan goes on to lead by nine frames to seven and you think he's weathered the storm here Gray has clung on well it'll be good experience for him but O'Sullivan is going to go through to the next round to play Dominic Dale as it turned out wasn't what happened at all O'Sullivan just could not get over the line and The last three frames were all close. It wasn't as if Gray started making big breaks because he didn't do that at all. But Gray actually showed a lot more composure than O'Sullivan. He didn't seem phased at all by the enormity of what he was about to achieve, whereas O'Sullivan did seem to struggle to get over the line. Gray won those three close frames and and went through, and it was just a magnificent match, just twists and turns all the way. The result was just on, on a knife edge. All the way through, even at 9-7, when it looked like O'Sullivan was on the brink of winning, he didn't entirely write off grey because he'd come back so many times in that match. I remember a few days later, actually, after he had lost 13-1 to Dominic Dale in the second round, two things I remember, he was in the bar in the Novotel later that night. i have never seen anyone so disconsolate. He just couldn't understand how he had gone from the highlight of his career to playing <coughs> so badly in the space of a few days. And the other thing Clive actually picked up on that, Point in one of his BBC radio reports and he used some grandiose line like Clive does about yeah. how Gray was left to reflect on the transient nature of glory as uh, he followed his win over O'Sullivan with defeat to Dale. And I think one of the tabloid lads said, what on earth does that mean? And he piped <laughs> up with, it means he lost this time. And uh, he certainly had, but he had left his mark on the championship and he went on to do well at the Crucible again and he got to a UK final and he won a ranking title. And look, it didn't turn out too badly for O'Sullivan either because 12 months later he came back to Sheffield and won the World Championship. But I always remember that match from... It was it was a really good championship, that, actually, in 2000. Ended up with a memorable final between Mark Williams and Matthew Stevens, And uh, that was one of the first highlights of it on, uh, I think it was day three, that Grey knocked out one of
0: the favourites for the title. Yeah, great choice. Um, I'm going to move straight on to mine. I've, I've actually picked one match from the 80s, one from the 90s, and one from the 2000s. So the first match, it's another first-round match. It's another decider, 1984... Neil Falls against Alex Higgins. Uh, this was just before I started watching Snooker. Um, and all I've seen of it is Neil being interviewed by David Icke, who of course his career took a slightly mm. different turn years later. Um, it's interesting, it was Neil's first appearance at the Crucible. Now he was from a Snooker family, of course, his father was a professional, and he would have gone to the Crucible to watch. But the intimidation factor, firstly, of making your Crucible debut. And around that time, West Snooker had become absolutely massive on TV, you know, walking into the lion's den. But playing Alex Higgins, who was the crowd favourite and just an intimidating character anyway, how he must have felt. And, you know, to win that match, um, incredible, really. He had every reason to get basically battered in that match. But he was only, I think, Neil was only 20 at the time. It was all kind of new to him. And because I've become good friends with Neil in recent years, i just love to see it. I'd love to watch that match and see how it went. I think, had I watched it at the time... I, because I was sort of young and impressionable, I probably would have supported Higgins. There's something fascinating about him. I was never a massive fan of his, but I would always watch him because he was watchable. There's always, yeah. sen- There's always a sense that something would happen. As the years have gone on, I've become less of a fan of him, to be perfectly honest. So, certainly after I, had a, after I had a few dealings with him. Um, that's Alex, by the way, not Neil. <laughs> <laughs> but, but Neil as well, I mean. Yeah, yeah, but actually, it just sounds like a, a classic matchup between, you know, a, a new kid on the block and one of the, already one of the legends. And I think I'd like to hear as well the different levels of support they got because it's true Alex Higgins was the people's champion, but the Crucible crowd always love an underdog. And I, I suspect Neil would have had a fair bit of support as well. Yeah, he got the tough draws in those days, didn't he? Because the following year he was back
1: there and played Steve Davis in the first round and uh, pushed him hard. I think it was 10-8 in the end that Steve won that one. But yeah, I mean, that would be a great one to see. And You know, Neil was one of the first of those players to come through guys of that age of that generation who came along to establish to uh, to challenge the established order like Higgins and as you say Higgins was such an enormous star I think he'd been runner up in sports personality of the year in 82 so that's how prominent he was so for him to play his first round match in the world championship was a massive sporting mm. occasion really it transcended snooker um and fair play to Neil to go out there and just keep his composure and manage to to get the results in those daunting circumstances as you alluded to
0: yeah, they showed uh, one of the Crucible Classics, they showed the 82 final uh, Higgins against Ray Reardon, and you just couldn't take your eyes off Alex Higgins, it was just even when he wasn't playing, he was always twitching, and there was just a sense always of something was going to happen, but of course on, on that day he won the World Championship. Okay, so that, we're two down, four to go, you're, you're the next choice.
1: Yeah, this is the other one I flagged up last week, a quarter final from 1987, Joe Johnson against Stephen Hendry. Now, Joe obviously had very surprisingly won the championship. He'd had a poor season, really, as defending champion, but he'd got through the first couple of rounds. And now he was playing Hendry, who'd perhaps had a better season than him. And he got through the first couple of rounds as well. And Hendry hadn't won a ranking title by then. He hadn't even been in a final of one yet. But the amazing thing is, and this is my recollection of it, he was already so obviously so good that people were actually... Talking about him as a potential winner of the championship that year at the age of 18. And it's certainly also my memory of it that he was, I think, roundly expected to beat Joe Johnson. Wasn't how it turned out at all. Johnson goes 7 1 up after the first session, comes back that night, wins the first frame. So it's 8 1. And from there, a little bit of a comeback, but still 9 3. It's looking very good for Johnson. And you're even thinking he might come out and uh, win the last four frames of the night and get through with the session to spare. Instead of which, Henry then wins the next three, back to 9 6. So, obviously, the last frame of the night is absolutely massive. It goes to a respot. Joe pots the respot, but goes in off. So, instead of <laughs> 10 6, it's only 9 7 overnight. Put it behind him very well. They were straight back out the next morning for the final session. Johnson goes 12 8 up. So, you think, okay, he's weathered the storm here. But again, Henry comes back at him, gets back to 12 all. And then Joe in the last frame. Uh, Made a good break early on and sought out from there to go through 13-12. And as we know, he went on to beat Neil Foles, actually, and get to the final. I've tried to find this match on YouTube, actually, and all I can find is the penultimate frame. And you should have a look at it because it only takes less than five minutes because Henry's so quick. He's so fearless. He wins it in one visit. And it was just an early taste of what we were to see from Henry so often at the Crucible and other venues over the years all out attacking Snooker, going down, fighting if he's going down at all. And basically, if you watch those few minutes, you're seeing Hendry in the early stages of effectively reinventing the game. It's a wonderful watch, and it was a fantastic match in what wasn't really a great championship, actually, in 87. Uh, But great result from Johnson because it was pitched, I think, as the young man (coughs) against the older generation. Now, Hendry, obviously, as I said, was 18, but Joe was 34. You know, it wasn't exactly over the hill by any means. Uh, But he did well to pull it off because I think people expected... That Hendry might end his his reign as champion, and uh, no matter how many times Hendry came back at him, Johnson just managed to get over the line, and I'm sure that stands out as one of the great results of his career.
0: Well, I say two things about that match. The first, of course, the 987 championship they had that blue set, didn't they? That's Which right, uh, yeah. I think was because it was 60 years of the yeah. world championship, or maybe a sponsor thing. Anyway, that's by the by. The other thing I would say is Stephen Hendry uh, started playing snooker when he had a table. He never played before he got a six-foot table christmas 1982 i think or
1: 1981 i think
0: it was so we're only we're only five years after that we're talking about this match i mean it's incredible when people talk about the great natural talents they never mention Hendry. but he had an extraordinary eye for snooker and as you say the speed and just that kind of you could see in him that stubborn determination i'm going to be the best player i already kind of think i am and i'm going to prove it you could see it in him even as a teenager
1: Yeah, he he never tempered his attacking instincts that much, you know. People say that soon after that, around the time he won the Grand Prix, he really started to curb his attacking instincts, and he did, but only very marginally, and he never really changed after that right to the end of his career, and people said to him that if you just curbed your attacking instincts a bit, maybe you could be a bit more like Steve Davis and have a longer career, but he wasn't interested. He didn't want to play that way, and he said anyway that he didn't know how to play the other way, and if he had, reined it in a bit he wouldn't have been like Steve he wouldn't have gone on for years achieving those results uh, that, that that Steve did to such a late age and I'm inclined to agree with him actually but it, you should really have a look at those few minutes he just looks so young and so blonde and just and so thin as well actually um, but uh, it, it's just fantastic to see just an early glimpse of a player who was going to come along and change the game and, and become and I know this is a less popular view now but still in my mind the greatest player there's ever been
0: okay well that's and that's that is literally an argument for another day in fact we've already done it me and nil. but anyway yeah. um no i mean people do say that and i'm not i'm not going to start that that argument now even though i don't agree with it um my next match and i've chosen this because well for two reasons actually one because it exemplifies one of the reasons we love the world championship and that's when it becomes a right old twitch up and the second is because there's no footage of it because it went on so late that they actually the cameraman went home. Um it's from nineteen ninety-four, it's the first round, it's Nigel Bond and it's Cliff Thorburn. Now, this match has become known for the fact that Thorburn was nine two up, Bond won 10-9. Cliff was past his best by this point. He hadn't played at the Crucible in four years, he had to qualify. But he came along and started playing really well. He was five two up, they came off early after the first session. That's maybe not a huge shock. He had a one-three-nine break in the in the next session, you know, he was playing vintage stuff, went nine-two up. Couldn't quite close it out. Bond's come back to 9-7, but this is the key thing that never gets mentioned. They were then taken off. So then he had a few hours. And 9-7 is no sort of lead. 9-2 is different, but 9-7, having to sweat for a few hours, thinking I should have already won. You can just imagine the tension uh, of coming back hours later in that sort of midnight shift when you've got the whole arena to yourself. But as I say, because it was so late, you know, unions and so on, they didn't actually film it, so there's no footage of it. So I actually can't watch it again, but I'd love to have seen just the twitching going on. I mean, Cliff was not a bottler. That's one thing you've got to say about him. He was a very, very tough player. One thing about it, though, is had he had won, had Cliff had won, he would have played Terry Griffiths in the second round. Now, bearing in mind, in 1983, 11 years earlier, they fought out the latest ever finished, 3.51 a.m., when they are at their peaks. Can you imagine, because they are both by 94 past their best, can you imagine how late it would have finished had they played each other again?
1: They'd still be playing. They'd still be playing. <laughs> but it's, it's funny you mention that match, because I don't think there's any footage of the finish of that match in 83 either, mm. uh, for, for, for the very same reason. I think also Cliff made a point afterwards, which I was astonished to hear a player make. It's the sort of point that the likes of us make. He said that was the only time he had ever lost on that table. He said every match he'd ever lost at the Crucible before was on the other table or obviously in the one table setup. So he said that was the only time he'd ever lost. I think it was on table one. And he said Mm -hmm. that was the only match he ever lost on that side of the arena.
0: Wow. That is, that's that's not even in the almanac. That's how how deep that is. It's a stat.
1: Okay. Well,
0: uh, your final choice. So we're going back 17 years now
1: to a quarter final Mm. and, Whenever people talk about Ken Doherty's run to the final in 2003, they obviously talk about the semi-final against Paul Hunter, and rightly so. It was an amazing match. What often isn't mentioned is the remarkable adventures he had to get to that semi-final. First round, cleared up to beat Sean Murphy 10-9 on the black. Second round, 7-2 down against Graham Dott, comes back to win 13-12, an absolute epic, just dripping with tension throughout. So then he's in the quarterfinal against John Higgins and you're starting to think maybe he's got a chance here. And in fact, earlier in the season, they met in the quarterfinals of the UK and Doherty was 5-1 up, Higgins got back to 5 all before Doherty pulled away again. But I remember watching this quarterfinal of the, the World Championship in the Crucible Press Room with Phil Yates. Now, Phil and I were basically doing the whole Irish media between us at that time, or most of it. Phil was working for the Irish Independent. He was filing for RTE as well. I was filing for the other Irish national broadcaster as well as the Irish Times. I'd have vested interest in Ken anyway, uh, being an Irishman, and we were, we were even playing in the same club at the time. And I remember when I got to 5-0, uh, Phil and I did a high five. And then when it went 6-0, we did a high five and added a finger from the other hand. And as the frames were going by, we thought we're going to run out of fingers here. We might have to use another part of the anatomy, and that's not a prospect anyone wants to, uh, to contemplate. But sure enough, by the end of the morning, 8-0, and nobody could believe that player of john higgins class was that far behind we expected a comeback but it didn't come straight away at all uh they resumed that evening 9-0 10-0 now at the start of the match if you'd been mad enough to think that ken was going to win 13-0 you could have got 2000 to 1 and i remember checking this with balthazar fabricius Mm. of the on-site bookmakers i mean what a fantastic name Balthazar was a great guy, and he was keeping me updated, actually, on all this. He, he went and looked up what it would have been at the start of the match. When it went 10-0, he told me that the odds were now down to 3-1 to on John Higgins losing 13-0. Just think of that. Finally, then, some relief for Higgins. He actually almost made a maximum in the next frame. He missed the 15th black. Then he gets the next one as well, 10-2. You're still thinking, Donny, might even finish this off tonight. But back he comes, 10-3, 10-4, 10-5. Last frame of the night goes to the black. Higgins wins it. And suddenly it's 10-6, and it's the most fragile 10-6 lead we've ever seen at the Crucible. And then I went into the arena for the final session the next afternoon. Higgins wins the first frame of the afternoon to get back to 10-7. And you can imagine what's going on in Ken's head at this stage, thinking that, you know, he might lose. He might end up losing 13-10 the way it was going at this stage. And he was way behind in the next frame. It looked like it was going 10-8. Doherty pulled out this amazing clearance of 63 to win it on the black, how he managed to do that in the circumstances when his head must have been scrambled all over the place, and that really settled him, that was so much the turning point of the whole match, that made it 11-7 and from there he saw it out to win 13-8 but a fantastic afternoon um, for for Ken just to to sort of hold off that fight back from Higgins and he admitted afterwards, he was very open about it, he said, what would I have done? How would I ever have got over it if I lost from 10-0 up? He said it would have been gone down as the biggest collapse since wall street in the 1920s and then of course he went off from there to Pete hunter and then that great final he had against mark williams where he was uh, 10-2 down got back to 11 all and just couldn't get in front and ended up losing 18-16 but i just think i mean that run that doherty had that year i think every single match of it could be part could be part of a crucible classic series and that one uh, was one that certainly stood out for me but you know just to have been there on the day that john higgins found himself 10-0 down in the crucible it was really quite something.
0: Yeah, I remember seeing him when he was 8 nil down and he was waiting, I think, for a courtesy car or something outside the cruise Crucible. And he did look shell-shocked, Higgins. But of course, this is the genius of the World Championship and the longer matches and the sessions and the fact that matches are played over days. Because if you'd have said to Ken before play began, after 17 frames, Ken, you're going to be leading John Higgins 10-7, he would have been delighted. But it's the fact that he was 10 nil up. That was the problem. And then suddenly Higgins is coming back. Like you say, in your mind, you're only human. Uh, to have those thoughts of what happens if I lose to me as well I would say this people often talk about what was the best world championship I think 2003 is right up there it was a fantastic tournament we ended up with a great final he just failed to pull it off against Mark Williams in terms of coming back but it was a terrific event that 2003 tournament
1: yeah it was and you know other events from around that era it was a great run actually around that time because 2005 I thought was a really good one 2006 people always talk that one down but I thought there was a lot of really good stuff there and I think the final, particularly the last couple of frames, was far, far better than people actually make it out to have been. But I totally agree. 2003, it was a great time for the game, actually, at Mark Williams having his sort of second coming. O'Sullivan had already won a world title by then. Hendry was still a very good player. And you still had the likes of White and Davis and, to a lesser extent, Paris knocking around. So, great time for the game, that. Although I seem to remember that was one of the worst periods. Uh, in the game's history, in terms of the uh, off-table politics that were going on, that uh, thankfully we managed to uh, get through a few years later.
0: Just before I carry on, because Ken's mentioning this, I, I had a couple of tweets about matches, and Donald, who I think he's Irish, he said, um, "I'd love to watch Ken's match again against Alex Higgins in the first round in '94, because that was that was Higgins, that was the Thorburn year as well against Bond. That was Higgins' last appearance. He managed to he put up a good fight actually, but uh, and also nearly had a fight with John Williams, the referee, who. Uh, him in his place and also uh, Kelly Barker who's a huge snooker fan Yeah, she, she'd be there now with Chris the season ticket holders if it was on she's mentioned actually a match someone else mentioned earlier Alex Higgins Terry Griffiths 1979 what bits there are on YouTube are brilliant it's a match I'd love to see more of of course that was the year that Terry won the title okay so my final choice as I said is from the 2000s it is actually 2006 which you just mentioned it's the quarterfinals it's Graham Dott against mm-hmm. Neil Robertson now we all remember well it, it, people who remember it remember Graham Dot's final against Peter Ebden, of course the semi-final against Ronnie O'Sullivan where he completely cracked O'Sullivan's resolve but he very nearly didn't make it through what I would say about these two players is this clearly Neil Robertson has had the better career you look at the record he's had an incredible career um, one, of the, one of the great players certainly the best non-British player there's ever been yeah. but in terms of their crucible careers you could argue Graham Dot's had the better run of it he's been in three world finals obviously Neil Robertson so far Spinning been in one. He beat Dot, of course, to win the title in 2010. Uh, it seems to me the World Championship was made for Dot, the longer matches, but also his temperament, so often coming to the fore there. Terrific battler, terrific player, full stop. And, of course, when he won the title, because a lot of it was quite slow-moving, he got this reputation for being, you know, a dour player. Not a bit of it. A great player to watch, as he proved again, actually, when they played in that World Grand Prix final earlier yeah. this season. But here's the thing, and one of the reasons I'd like to see it again... And you, you probably will remember. I can't quite remember what happened. I'm sure it revolved around a yellow in the decider. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Now, in my mind, it's one of two things. Either Neil took it on when he should have played a snooker or he played a snooker when he should have took it on. I can't quite remember which was which. Yeah, I've got to
1: be honest. I don't entirely remember myself <laughs> either. But I, I was, I was in, the, um, in the arena for that. And it was one of those great situations where a play had long since finished on the other table. So the wall was up. So you, you had a one-table setting before the one table stage if you know what I mean and of course Dot had been 10-6 uh, up going into that last session mm. uh in fact he'd been 10-5 up because Robertson uh, won the last frame the, the night before and then obviously we found ourselves in that decider I, I well, it was 12-8 as well It was 12-8
0: uh, as well so he, he nils won he, four in right, a row Yeah,
1: he's won four in a row to get back to it I, I, I had a vested interest because I'd actually backed Robertson to win the championship that year which he didn't do although he did deliver for me because I did back him again in 2010 but that's another story um, there, there was a safety shot in the yellow, and I think there was a miss And then Robertson, I seem to remember, played some, made a very strange shot selection mm. um, on the yellow. So a bit like you, I don't remember exactly what it was. And then he said afterwards that he thought if the balls got put back, they might not be put back in the right way. I, I, but certainly he made a, a decision on the yellow when it came down to a safety duel that uh, a lot of us questioned. And I think that ultimately cost him the match. And I mean, on such moments do entire careers turn because Robertson was playing so well, he might well have gone on to win it that year would have been a big surprise if he had won at them because he was only just coming into the top 16 and Dot, of course, as we know, did go on to win and, you know, probably would never have, have had a chance like that again, if he hadn't been world champion that year. But one of those occasions, we talked about this, didn't we, in one of the previous podcasts, it's almost more dramatic to have that one table going and mm-hmm. the other one sitting idle than when it's one table out in the middle. And uh, when I think of the most remarkable tension that I've experienced in the Crucible arena, that that for me really stands out. I remember uh, sitting in there watching that decider. But, yeah, great match and a much underrated championship, you know. And you think of the first round match between Henry and Bond and all the drama of the Reece So, yeah, that was a really good year, that.
0: Yeah, and I think it's strange to say this about Neil Robertson, who I... You know, regard very highly as a player and as a person. But it's like he's a bit of a Crucible nearly man. Now it's strange to say that because he's won it, yeah. <laughs> which which most players have never done. But you know, he's never been in another final. I think he's been in two of the semi-finals. Of course, lost that one to Selby, which is part of this Crucible Classic series. Um, went there last year, playing fantastically well. Played fantastic well for two rounds. And I think his only sort of playing weakness sometimes is that he gets a bit sucked in if he's playing a tactical player because he can play that game. And he did get sucked in with John Higgins. It wasn't the best match, but Higgins kind of mastered it. And when sort of Robertson tried to get out of that mode, his rhythm had gone. Um, he was looking good to win last year. He was the best player for the first week of the tournament. Now, of course, he's by far from done yet. He's, you know, you know second in the world rankings. And, you know, if this, whenever this tournament is played, he'll be one of the favourites. But if he ends his career with just one world title, you feel considering how good he is and how well he's done in other events, you know, that wouldn't be enough, really, considering his ability.
1: Imagine how long the lockdown would have to go on for us to get so niche that we would discuss which of the one time world
0: champions <laughs> was the
1: most surprising not to win it again. But listen, give it a few months. It may yeah. come to that. It'd certainly be in there. And he's mentioned that himself, actually. I know John Higgins used to talk about it, actually, uh, because it took him so long to win. It would have been even more surprising if John had only won one, but it took him nine years to win it again. He didn't win it again until 2007. And Neil has spoken openly about it as well. He was relatively young when he won it for the first time. 10 years ago he's still got a few years left and I think you would say obviously no guarantees whatsoever but you would marginally say more likely than not I would fancy he'll get another one uh, before his career ends
0: I hope so I think that'd be great anyway so there are our choices now obviously you know they're just personal choices let us know uh, uh, what you think of those let us know Anything else we've talked about the snooker? We heard from snooker in Italy. If you live in another country, tell us about snooker there. The, the email about the, the whole WST relaunch and all that stuff as well. You can email us snooker scene podcast at mail dot com. podcast at mail dot com. We do read all the emails, and thank you for. Uh, getting in touch we'd like to you know and ask us anything you like as well ask us any questions you like you know we've got potentially months yet to, <laughs> to, to talk about this stuff we're sort of I think probably focus on world championship stuff for the moment because of course it should be on at the moment and, and there's no getting away from that we should be in Sheffield or watching it certainly um, but we're not and we're trying to do our best to keep uh, people uh, relatively entertained so uh, so that's it then Michael so and uh, I w- good wishes to you as well and your family because there's a, a big event coming up
1: yeah, yeah, second child being born hopefully in the next few days, a brother or sister for Matthew. So, uh, yeah, exciting times, and um, we'll see how it all plays out.
0: Absolutely. Well, best wishes for that. And uh, we will be back in some form next week. Thanks for listening. Sports Social Podcast Network.
1: It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you What do you do when you win?